From Mito Japan, I'm Frank Ling, and this is the Grok Science Show. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the way it affects our daily lives. Coming up, our special feature on the Higgs boson, and joining us to talk about it will be Dr. Ian Hinchcliffe. So stay tuned for all this, plus the Grokron 5000. Welcome back to the program. Uh, joining us this week is our very special guest, Dr. Ian Hinchcliffe from the Lawrence Berkeley National Labs. And he's going to be talking to us about the latest discovery of the Higgs boson. Uh, Dr. Hinchcliffe, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. So I guess it looks like it's Christmas time in the physics community. Uh, you must be very excited these last few days. Yes, Christmas came on the 4th of July. <laughs> Um, it's been a long time coming. Um, we've got, many of us have been working on this, on, particularly on the LHC project, for 20 years or so. Uh -huh. And people have been looking for the Higgs boson for 30 or more years. Just to give us a little background in terms of the, the science behind it, uh, what, what exactly is a Higgs boson and you know, how does that relate to you know, our understanding of protons, neutrons, and electrons? So over the last 30 or 40 years, we've slowly built up something we call the standard model of particle physics, which describes uh, how nuclei are bound together, uh, describes the interactions of the uh, constituents of nuclei, quarks and leptons, electrons and muons, of these electrons that we see around us. But the key missing ingredient that we always had was where does the mass of these particles come from? What is the fundamental mechanism that makes an electron much lighter than a, than a, than a, a W boson? That's the thing responsible for weak interactions. So until we had some evidence for a mechanism which could generate mass for these particles, the standard model was incomplete. We've measured the masses of lots of quarks and, and leptons and the gauge bosons over the last few years, but without this missing ingredient, the whole the, the underlying theory is perhaps called, called into question. So the Higgs boson is a manifestation of this fundamental mechanism which gives mass to everything. And it's the interactions with the Higgs field that gives mass to all these other particles. Uh, particles that interact more strongly with the Higgs field, like the top quark, get a much larger mass than particles that interact much more weakly, like the electron. And some particles don't interact at all, like the photon, so they have no mass. So this Higgs field, is that a fundamental property of space-time, or, or yes. is it just an abstract concept? Well, yes, it's an abstract concept. Um, and in some sense, it's a fundamental property of space-time. The Higgs boson, you can think of as an excitation of that Higgs field. It's, a, it's, a, it's a, maybe you want to say, a collective phenomenon 
Uh, one analogy which sometimes helps people is if I have a pond of water, I can imagine that pond of water as being the heat field, and then if I throw a rock into it and a wave starts up, that wave is sort of like the excitation. There's energy in that wave. And you can think of that excitation as the Higgs boson, which has itself some mass. So by finding this Higgs particle, this Higgs boson, if that's what we found, we have some evidence of the existence of this Higgs field. And the interactions of the Higgs boson with the other particles in the standard model are all predicted by the standard model. This is very important. Once the mass is known, in the simplest version of the standard model, we don't know what the Higgs mass is. The theorists were unable to predict it. But once the mass is determined, then its properties are extremely well defined. And so that enables us to answer the question, is this particle that we've observed at CERN a Higgs boson? We don't know yet. We know it's a boson. It's got some of the features that we think a Higgs boson has, but over the next few years when we do very detailed measurements, We'll test all these theoretical predictions, which are now extremely definite. And if they all turn out to be right, then yes, it's the Higgs boson. You, you mentioned waves, and of course, you know, you're, you're dealing with um, interactions at very, very small dimensions. How does this relate to quantum mechanics? Well, the standard model is a, is a quantum mechanical theory. Uh, it's it's a if you like, a more sophisticated version, an extended version of quantum electrodynamics, which is the quantum theory that describes the behavior of atoms, which was developed in the late 40s and early 50s. Mm -hmm. So the standard model is an extension of that. It's not a replacement of it. I so see. It, it is indeed a quantum theory. Uh, as you mentioned, this was done at the Large Hadron Collider, the LHC. Um, could you tell us a little bit in terms of uh, what went into it? in terms of building this device and how, uh, what your contribution was? So the, I, I was not involved in building the machine. I'm a, a member of one of the two experiments that uh, found the evidence for the Higgs boson. But let's back off a little bit and talk about the machine. Okay. So the Large Hadron Collider consists of two proton uh, rings uh, with protons circulating in opposite directions. And the protons are held in these uh, in these orbits by about 1,200 ma uh, superconducting magnets uh, buried in the tunnel just outside Geneva. So in order to have enough energy to produce the Higgs boson, you need a very large uh, that, that determines the size of the machine. Essentially, the energy is determined by the magnetic field that you can produce and the size of the tunnel. So once you know what energy you want and what magnetic field you can produce, which is technologically limited, that tells you what the size of the tunnel is. So this project, which collides the, the two protons, produces an enormous number of interactions, proton collisions per second, about half a billion uh, proton interactions per second. And then it's the job of the detectors to uh, look at the debris coming out of these proton collisions and find a very small number of events, handful of events in some channels that correspond to these Higgs, to these Higgs events. So I'm a member of the Atlas Collaboration. It's a large international collaboration with about 2,500 physicists from all over the world. It's mm -hmm. sort of like a UN of physics, if you like. Um, there are large contributors. About 25% of the collaborators are from the U.S., mostly from universities and a few national laboratories. I've been on the Atlas experiment since 1996, which is before somewhat after it was started. Most of the U.S. groups joined in 1994. 
my role and the, my institute's role was involved in building the pixel detector, which is the piece of the atlas detector that's very closest to the interaction point. It gets the first look at the particles as they emerge from the interaction point and makes extremely precise measurements of, the, of their momentum by bending the charged ones in the magnetic field. You bend the particle in the magnetic field, you watch it mm -hmm. set, and from that you can infer its momentum. Uh, personally, I was involved in, uh, partly involved in the computing project. Uh, Atlas is a, there's a huge amount of data produced here, and uh, computing in the LHC experiments is a worldwide enterprise. The data is taken at CERN, but it's distributed to computing centers all over the world. Uh, the data resides there, and then jobs are run on something called the grid, where, uh, for example, if I submit an analysis job, I don't really care where it goes. Computing center that happens to have resources. And we have a large sensor in the U.S. for Atlas at Brookhaven and a comparable one uh, for CMS in uh, Fermilab near Chicago. So you mentioned you're detecting the debris, so this means you're not actually detecting the Higgs boson itself, but that you're, you're detecting the aftermath, the, what happens after it decays. That's correct. The Higgs boson has such a short lifetime that we cannot be observed. Uh, we can't watch its motion before it decays. It, it, it decays too quickly. Uh, so what you have to do is look at the decay products. So you look for this debris that comes out, and you look for specific decay products that could only come from the Higgs. So, for example, the two channels, that, the two final states that have the most sensitivity at the moment and the ones that were shown by both Atlas and CMS at the recent seminar at CERN involved looking for the Higgs boson to its decay into two photons uh, and its decay into four charged leptons, either electrons or muons. Uh, in the second of those, there are very few events. I quoted a few moments ago the half a billion events per second. And the data that we're showing was data taken over many months. Mm -hmm. So the enormous number of events were produced. And in the final distribution in these four charged electron events, there's a handful, about 10, in each of the two experiments. Uh, so you see it's a very difficult exercise to filter through all these uh, large amounts of data and pick out what isn't really a needle in a stack. It's much smaller than that. Um, in the other channel, uh, the two-photon channel, there are a few more events, but there's more what we call background. So there's more other debris predicted that could fake the signal. So it needs a more sophisticated analysis there to distinguish between the debris that's not the Higgs and the debris that is the Higgs. So you, you look at the uh, mass of, of the two-photon system and you try to find a peak somewhere. And if you can find a peak, then that would be perhaps an indication of the Higgs or, any, or some other new particle. It doesn't have to be the Higgs. And so what was seen in these two experiments and in these two channels each, which is four channels total, is they all see something which is consistent with each other. They all see roughly the same mass, about 126 GeV, and they see a number of events which is consistent with each other. That's very important that Atlas and CMS uh, are seeing the same thing because if that weren't the case, one would have some doubts that perhaps one of the experiments were wrong, and we don't have mm -hmm. any such information. Um, and the, the properties that we've measured in these two final states and four measurements are consistent with the Higgs boson. But at the moment, all we can know for sure is that the particle has some mass around 126 GeV, and it is a boson. It's, so in that sense, it's not like a quark or electron, which are fermions. Mm 
Mm-hmm. We have not yet proved it's a spin zero boson, which would be the characteristic feature of the Higgs particle. The Higgs in the standard model is unique. It's the only elementary spin zero particle, which is why some of my theoretical colleagues don't like the concept. All right, it's been a very good conversation. Uh, let's just take a quick pause here. We're talking with Dr. Ian Hinchcliffe from Lawrence Berkeley National Labs on the discovery of the Higgs boson. So I'm trying to get my head around this concept of the GEV. Uh, is that the equivalent of of the, yeah, sorry, the mass? I, have, I was a bit jargonized there. Uh, the mass of the proton is about one GEV, okay. a little bit less. So the mass of this resonance is about 140 times the mass of the proton. And is that due to relativistic effects as you accelerate these particles near the speed of light? The, the mass comes from... Uh, you need enough energy in the machine uh-huh. to produce the Higgs particle, and that's partly why the LHC is able to produce it, whereas other experiments weren't able to because they didn't have enough energy. So that's one of the criteria that was necessary in designing the LHC. It was designed in such a way, since we didn't know what the Higgs boson mass was, it was designed to be able to search for the Higgs boson more or less independent of its mass. Things from early experiments which had a rather restricted mass range. Does the Higgs boson form in nature, for example, in, within the stars? Uh, in the very early universe, yes. In, in the very early universe, when the uh, universe was extremely hot, uh, all particles existed. Uh, they may have decayed afterwards, but yes, it was produced in the very early universe. It does not exist in the in the interior of a star because the star is not hot enough. I think it's well known that uh, physicist Leon Letterman had given this name the the God particle, but it's not widely celebrated in the community. Uh, can you tell us a little bit be- of the story behind that? Well, the story is that he referred to it as the goddamn particle, and the publisher. <laughs> one, I don't know whether that's true. You should ask Leon that question. I think the name is extremely unfortunate because it brings connotations which are, uh, are not appropriate. This has nothing to do with religion. And, and I think that, it, that the name may confuse more people than it helps. But is it the ultimate particle that physicists well, are looking for? I think you for? might say it's the key particle in the sense that it gives mass to all the others and to itself. So in that sense, it plays a key role. And, and of course, you know, um, every time you answer one question in physics, it opens the door for many more. Uh, what does this pave the way, way for in terms of new physics that is to be discovered in the future? Well, I don't know yet. Of course, if I did know that, I'd have written a theory paper on it. But I don't know, I don't know the answer to that. But the, it's most important to understand what the first steps will be. The first steps over the next couple of years will be to do more detailed measurements of the properties of this particle. Uh-huh. For example, you'd like to establish that it couples to quarks and leptons. Uh, so far, there isn't really any evidence for that because we've seen it in final states coming from gauge bosons. The four-charged electron final state is really coming from two intermediate gauge bosons, so the direct coupling is not to the electrons. 
So we'd like to see that it couples to electrons, to quarks and electrons, as predicted by the standard model. We'd like to see it happens at the right rate. If it doesn't, then that will tell us there's something wrong with the standard model. Uh, maybe this is not the Higgs. Uh, many of my theoretical colleagues believe that, they, because they don't like the idea of a unique scalar, believe that perhaps there's many Higgs bosons, that there's, the, the Higgs field is more complicated than we think, and there's more manifestations. Other of my colleagues believe in supersymmetry, which means that there's nothing particularly unique about the Higgs. There will be lots of other spin-zero particles. We might find particles responsible for dark matter, for example. I, I don't know whether that will happen reason we're doing the experiments. I mean, if you only do, one shouldn't only do experiments where one knows the answer. In some sense, the experiment's pointless. Uh, I want to learn something new, and since I don't know what I will find out, I can't <laughs> tell you in advance. Sorry for the vague answer, but, but that's the way science works. Of course, of course. One of the controversies before these experiments were conducted was the, the notion that uh, these particle accelerators would create a mini black hole. Where, where did this concept come from? It comes from, I, I would say it comes from uh, ill-informed people. <laughs> um, I, mean, uh, I mean, so first of all, we haven't formed a black hole, so you don't need to worry about it anymore. Um, it, com it comes from the idea that if there were, I don't really want to give this too much credence because it doesn't make any sense. I mean, one way of arguing against it is that the Earth has been bombarded for many years by very high-energy particles from outer space, what we call cosmic rays. Mm -hmm. And this has been going on since the Earth was formed. And the energy of some of these cosmic ray interactions in the atmosphere and in the Earth is less than the energy that we have at the LHC. So although the, they don't happen very often, the, flux, the rate of these cosmic rays coming in is extremely low, it's been going on for millions of years. So you could, if it were likely that the LHC would have formed a black hole, we wouldn't be here to answer the question. And yes, I know there was a lot of fuss, and, and CERN had to spend money defending a lawsuit to prevent the LHC being turned on, but fortunately we're past that. In terms of your own work, what were some of the biggest challenges you had to overcome to, to produce your computer analyses? Hey, uh, patience. Uh, that sounds like a strange thing, but patience and perseverance. I mean, I started out life as a theorist. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was recruited onto Atlas by the then U.S. Atlas spokesperson in 1995-6, as I said. Before then, I'd been trying to understand what was necessary to find the Higgs. What were the criteria that you would need? What were the basic design properties that were needed of a machine and an experiment? And I'd been working on that for, for several years beforehand. And uh, I guess speaking from purely personally, I decided that the theorists could speculate all they liked, but without some information, we weren't going to make any progress. So that was ultimately why I decided to join the experiment and try to contribute, try to make it work. So I was involved in simulation of the Atlas detector, which is a very important uh, uh, criterion. We have this detector, but we need to understand how we expect it to form and whether it performs according to expectations. And so we have programs that we call large simulation programs that effectively do a Gedanken experiment, do a toy experiment of this mm -hmm. thing, and enables us to study, for example, how the detector would respond to a Higgs boson, or some other new particle, and how it responds. So it enables us to develop analysis techniques to extract the signal. There's very few events from uh, many, many, many billions of billions of them. It's been an interesting time. I would have to say the most interesting, the most rewarding 
part of the collaboration was working with all these very smart people from from all over the world. It's always good to argue with smart people. You may not always agree with them. <laughs> right, right. Good to argue with them. Uh, you learn a lot by arguing with them. Certainly. Uh, so, yes, it's been a very, I'd say, satisfying ex uh, experience. And, of course, it's not done yet, as I said. We're only at the mm -hmm. beginning. Is this something that you would have been able to do 10 years ago, or is it only because of the recent advances no, in... The, the answer to that is no. Uh, for two reasons. Both the volume of the data that's being handled and the speed at which it needs to be processed, of course, they're coupled. If I have a very large volume of data and I'm willing to spend years and years and years, I can analyze it. But it's important to understand that the results that were shown last week at CERN were based on data that was only taken a few weeks earlier. And that was really quite remarkable that we're able to process the data in such a short period of time. Uh, people, I've had people asking me why we're waiting until the end of the month to uh, publish the papers. Uh, the answer is, well, you know, it takes a few more weeks, but in the past, uh, experiments have taken years to analyze their data. Data's been taken, it's taken years, basically because of computing limitations, which no longer exist. And it's only by harnessing these computer resources all over the world that we've been able to do this. So is your paper going to have 2,500 authors on it? Uh, yes. yes. Wow. Uh, I mean, this is a collaboration. Uh, and, and everybody's role on this experiment is, is almost equally important to everybody else's role. It's a very complex device. It took a, a very complex device to build, a very complex device to understand, and a very complex data set to analyze. Uh, so you can't... It's almost impossible to assign the credit to anything less than the entire collaboration. I'm sure this is a really, you know, a big windfall for the scientific community and hopefully inspires more research. Uh, have there been talks about building even more high-energy particle accelerators? Well, there's always talk. Uh, of course, it, these accelerators are extraordinarily expensive. Uh, so pe there has been talk. Now we know what the Higgs mass is. There has been talk of building an E plus E minus electron collider that could just produce the heat and study all its decay modes. Mm -hmm. uh, that's an advantage that the um, it's it's easier to dig the heat out from all the debris. The disadvantage is you did, couldn't build such a machine in advance because you didn't know where to what mass to build it for. But now we know the answer. Uh, I'm sure those discussions will be taking place intensively over the next two couple of years. There's also discussions going on, particularly in Europe, about raising the energy of the LHC. That's a very expensive project. It will replace, require replacing all these 1,200 magnets. It's not something that's going to happen in the next few years. And, and so these magnets you mentioned, uh, they're, as, they use superconductors, is that correct? That's correct. And that's one of the limitations. In order to uh, increase the energy in, in the existing LHC tunnel, you'd have to build magnets with a much higher magnetic field. And that means a different choice of superconductor from what's currently used. So there, there's some technology missing. Uh, people have managed to build very small-scale models of magnets, which will be sufficiently uh, powerful. But they're not being industrialized, so there's a huge uh, technical problem there. With the superconductors, they have to be cooled with liquid nitrogen, is that correct? That's correct. It's, it's, it's not liquid nitrogen. Well, it's partly liquid nitrogen. They're, they're actually cooled with superfluid liquid helium. There is liquid nitrogen, but that's only part of the system. So you have to get that gets it down to a certain temperature. Mm -hmm. And the magnets themselves are cooled with liquid helium.
I mean, you have to you have to get the temperature down to only a couple of degrees above absolute zero in order for the the uh, the, the metal the, the conductor in the, in the magnets becomes superconducting, and you have to hold it there. So not only are there these powerful magnetic fields, there's a very large cryogenic system, a very large refrigerator, if you like, mm -hmm. which is necessary to keep the whole thing cool. Well, uh, Dr. Hinchcliffe, it's been a really fascinating discussion. Okay, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. And we were just joined by Dr. Ian Hinchcliffe from the Lawrence Berkeley National Labs talking about the Higgs boson. In a few moments, he'll join us for the Garakaton 5000, so stay right there. Find a play that you keep watching over us From the heavens where light is the nucleus To the space filled with darkness and negative matter Anti-gravity pulls what I'd rather feel when I leave this shell eventually Ties to the mother earth ground me mentally Will vibes create a life spiritually Imagination brings bliss at no cost When I blink, blink, I receive at no loss Victory comes in small packages like a leaf off an olive tree Alright, well, Dr. Hinchcliffe has kind of agreed to join us on this week's Garakotron 5000. And this week's question is, name that particle. And I'll give you five subjects and you can tell us which particle they uh, resemble. Subject number one, uh, President of the United States, Barack Obama, what kind of particle is he? Well, that's like the Higgs boson because it's the, you know, the big cheese, so to speak. <laughs> Makes perfect sense. Subject number two, uh, Marvel comic character Spider-Man. Well, that could be the gluon. The gluon is the, is the particle, uh, it's a spin one particle that's responsible for binding quarks into nuclei. So it sticks the nuclei together, if you like. Okay, great. Uh, subject number three, iconic scientist Albert Einstein. I mean, that one in some sense would have to be the whole standard model. Because okay. Because a picture of everything. Because that was, of course, Einstein's goal uh, that he worked on for so many years was to come up with a, a unified theory of everything. And that's sort of what the standard model is almost. It doesn't include gravity, so it's not quite. Subject number four, uh, something a bit more contemporary. Uh, Professor Richard Feynman, what kind of particle is he? Well, Vic used to like puzzles, you know, picking locks at the Salamos and uh, playing bongo drums and, and anything that was uh, kind of wild and crazy. So that, I guess that would have to be some particle that we didn't expect. So if I go back historically, uh, that might even, if I go back to the 1930s, uh, that might be the muon. Okay. When it was discovered, well, famous physicists said, who ordered that? <laughs> Makes perfect sense. All right, and finally, our last subject, Star Wars character, uh, Jedi Master Yoda. What kind of particle is he? Well, he's something we haven't thought of, because he's something that's completely exotic. Uh, maybe some of my theoretical colleagues have thought of him. But that will be something that doesn't fit into the standard model, something new. 
So it could be a supersymmetric particle, for example. Years ago, when I used to give a seminar, I used to joke when uh, it was, we were talking about all the things we might see at the LHC, and there were many theoretical possibilities, far too many. And I used to finish my talk with a slide showing lots of uh, plots of things that people might see, and in the corner I used to stick a picture of Yoda. Okay, very, very um, insightful answers. Um, Professor Hinchcliffe, thank you so much for joining us on this week's Grok Science. Okay, pleasure. Good to talk to you. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us, you can email us at science at groks.net. You can also see us on the web at www.grox.net. And you can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. For Grox Science, I'm Frank Lang.